This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Magnin. And I'm Luca Olivier Dumoulet. We might have pre-announced the topic already, but just in case, what's our topic this week? This week, Yannick and I will dissect four WWDC sessions. Ooh. Uh, but first, of course, it wouldn't be a show without follow-up. So we did announce on a previous episode that we would be taking a break for the summer. We are going to be doing one more episode after this one in two weeks, and then we will return sometime in August. So please follow us on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast to get updated on when we're going to come back in August. Next up, I have some follow-up on episode two, our favorite episode on mobile payments, uh, the <laughs> seminal episode the of the show. Uh, this week, a problem has come to our attention from Japan, which is the iPhone X Suica problems. Uh, so the iPhone X is apparently causing transit gate errors. From anecdotal evidence, one out of three Suica taps results in an error flicker where the gate shows an error symbol, but then it immediately clears and the gate opens. Um, but it does cause like a stutter in the usual rate of letting people pass through the gates, which is a problem. And then one out of seven Suica taps result in a hard error where the gate simply stays closed, requiring a full reread of the NFC chip. Uh, which is often successful. Unfortunately, this means that the iPhone is no longer qualified for meeting the strict standards of transit card performance anymore, and this is a major issue for Japanese iPhone X users who have been complaining nonstop on Twitter, and I will be putting a link uh, to a nice recap thread on uh, Michael Tsai's blog, linking you to various sources about this problem. It is very unfortunate uh, that the iPhone X has this issue because as the flagship phone, it is effectively worthless at mobile Suica for a lot of people, and a lot of people have considered switching off the iPhone X uh, because of this, or a lot of people have switched to iPhone 8s because of it, uh, because this is apparently a hardware issue that only impacts the iPhone X for some reason. And there seem to be just general NFC chip issues with the iPhone X uh, if you're doing non- standard Apple Pay stuff. Basically, like, it seems like all of the non-standard Apple Pay stuff has not been tested well on the iPhone X, and that there's a hardware issue that is impeding the ability of those functionalities, which is unfortunate. Uh, next up, follow-up on episode 33. This was the episode that we did in February 2016 about the state of Xbox at the time. Keen listeners will know that E3 has happened between the last episode and now. This has nothing to do with E3, however. Uh, we're going to gloss over everything that happened or didn't happen at E3, because... To be honest, there's not much co worth commenting on. In an interview recently, Microsoft's chief marketing officer of gaming, Mike Nichols, said in an interview with GameIndustry.biz that uh, they don't have any plans specific to Xbox consoles in virtual reality and mixed reality. And this is strange because previously when the Xbox One X and the Scorpio uh, were being rumored as potential mid-generation upgrades for the Xbox One, Microsoft announced themselves that they would be collaborating with Oculus to get their VR up and running on Xbox One, and clearly that doesn't seem to be happening anymore. So PlayStation is sort of the only viable console option for virtual reality, at least in the near term. So I will put a link to the full interview in the show notes. And then on episode 69, called Nice, we played Magic the Gathering. And you might be saying, what kind of follow-up do you have for an episode about Magic the Gathering? Did you, could have you become a crazy Magic Master and win the Pro Tour? Unfortunately, nope. no. Nope. Nope, nope. But one thing that we did mention on that episode was that we were awaiting news of what was going to happen with Magic Arena. And this week, I got my invite to the Magic Arena closed beta. Uh, so I installed it on my work computer because it's PC only, and I played through my lunch breaks, and it is pretty awesome. It is a much richer experience than what is currently available in Magic Online. It's very comparable to Hearthstone in terms of 
presentation, polish, and animations. Um, one of the big things in the Magic community is people are freaking out because now the only way to get cards is to buy packs of random cards. There's no trading. You can't sell cards because this is meant to be like traditional mobile collectible card games. But if you actually do the math, on average, the cost of a deck in Magic Arena that is competitive is about a third of what it would cost to buy the single cards in paper, just assembled entirely out of random booster cards and wild cards, which are random cards inside those boosters, which can be redeemed for any card of that rarity. So Magic Online is, uh, Magic Arena, sorry, is really cool. And if you're interested in Magic the Gathering, definitely go check it out if you can get into the beta, of course. I signed up for my beta invite in September of last year, and I got it now. So I don't know if they're checking, like, how many events you go to in-store or something uh, against your Wizards of the Coast account or something. I haven't gone to that many events in the last year, so maybe I was way low on the list. But if you can get an invite, it is pretty nice. That's it for my follow-up. I know you have some follow-up, so... Yes, I do. So, um, in the latest episode where I was talking about CarPlay, which is not this one, but it will be the latest one in a couple of minutes. But in episode uh, 84, I talked about reimagining CarPlay. And funnily enough, last time Yannick and I recorded an episode, which was episode 90, a day after a recording, Apple released... A uh, quite uh, lengthy article and it's mostly PR statements about the fact that 400 vehicle models now supports CarPlay with the latest being the 2019 Subaru Impreza. <laughs> yes. Put the link in the show notes so you can go look at the list of 400 vehicle models and we will talk more about CarPlay in a couple of minutes. And that's it for my follow-up. I do have a small mini topic that Yannick, I'm sure, didn't know about, but that's okay. Uh, before we go into that, I would like to thank Maddie for taking my spot last episode. Yeah. It was uh, quite funny to listen to my own podcast while not being on my own podcast, so I, <laughs> I guess I've checked that box as a podcaster. Oh, well. But uh, like listening to you and Maddie talking about uh, your favorite city in Japan was quite amazing, and... I know you kind of entered at that, but I forgot that the reason why Maddie went in Yokohama for the first time was because of an exchange student program, which reminded me a lot of, uh, 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 reminded me a lot of when the time that talk about Linköping when I spent six months in Sweden during my university studies. So that was really, really nice. Yeah, it was a great episode and I liked recording it. It was very different from when we usually record. Yep. So before we move into the WWDC topic, I have a mini topic that is also related to me being in San Jose in 2018 and wouldn't be a post Oh WDC God, I remember what this is if, now. If I don't talk about the electric scooter in San Jose. Of course, Yay! like every podcast in the last two weeks. Yes. So if you haven't heard anything about the, I guess we can call it the Silicon Valley scooter fiasco. The pandemic. Pandemic could be another word. So the gist of it is imagine all of the car sharing services that I discussed in episode 90, where you pay as you go and pay as you use, and you drive around the city, leave the car. This is the same thing applied to electric scooters or even bikes. So you might not really be living in a city where this is applied to bikes, but the Silicon Valley startups decided to apply that to electric scooters. And the main reason why they do so is because they just want to reinvent the future of transportation. 
the main problem with that is they do that without city consultation. So they just drop a shit ton of electric scooter in the city without talking with the city itself and the city administration, and then people start to use it. So you can find a lot of article about that part of the subject. I don't want to go into that much detail. I just want to go about talking about, just want to talk about quickly about the experience, especially with the two companies that are there. And that's also why I would like to see that in Montreal. Uh, but there's a, were a lot of debates during that week because during the WDC week, San Francisco, the city announced that they would ban those services from San Francisco because of their pandemic approach to inserting like introducing those services without talking to the city officials i guess the main example we can compare it if you're a montrealer is the pixie system where it's uh and it's a bike sharing service that is driven by the city and those is with the electric scooter the main difference compared to what we have here in montreal bixie is the approach where you can leave the scooter everywhere compared to Bixie, where you need to lock back the bike at a lock station. Uh, but the gist of it is there's right now two competing startups, Bird and Lime. They offer the same service. You use your app, you unlock the, uh, you unlock the scooter and you just have fun. And also they offer, they also crowdsource the charging of those scooters at night to the citizens. So you can be paid to do birds or lime charging and then dispatch them around the city because they want to don't they don't want to do that themselves the favorite thing i've heard about that charging as a service thing that people can do is i hear that some people have been putting the scooters in completely inconvenient places like on the top of a mountain or something and that if the app decides that the location in which it was placed was too inconvenient to you they give you an additional bonus which i think is kind of amazing it reminds me of like games with really weird collectibles that are like completely in weird spots on the map except in real life uh the other unfortunate thing about this is some people have been putting uh, scooters in back alleys and then they wait for someone to go and pick it up and then they go and either mug them or worse uh which is kind of scary so, yeah, of course, uh, people are going to find ways to try and abuse the system. Yeah, exactly. But if we were talking about uh, the usage of them, uh, it's quite funny because every time I tried to use a bird, except one time, it didn't work. And most of the time I used the lime ones. It worked totally fine. So your mileage may vary. Do you think it's kind of like the AT&T network when uh, the iPhone had just come out and WWDC happened and, like, there was no usable cell service anywhere near WWDC because a dropship of developers were using all of the bandwidth. Do you think it's like that where like bird is off the map now because all of the developers are using bird right now? Uh, I don't know this one. The the first time I tried the bird ones, they were near my Airbnb, which was 20, 25 minutes walk from the convention center. So I guess I just like ran into a broken unit or something like that. Because you could see that the app wanted to send the unlock command to the device, but the scooter didn't want to unlock. So, But the main comparison uh, that you can see between them, they're mostly all the same. They work all the same. And, blah, blah, blah. and they also look like the uh, scooter emoji, if you want to have a better picture of them. But the main difference with them is the line ones are faster. 
That's mainly it. <laughs> the bird one can go as fast as 15 miles per hour. So it's like maybe 22, 23 kilometers per hour. But the lime one, and it has a speedometer on it, I was able to go as fast as 18.5 miles per hour. And if you think about it, it's quite fast because 18.5 is 30 kilometers per hour, around-ish. And in Montreal, in a lot of places nowadays, they lower the limit for cars to 30 kilometers per hour. Oh, wow. So you can be on a scooter and drive as fast as cars if you were in Montreal. Of course, in most uh, in San Jose, I think it's the limit is maybe 25, 30 miles per hour. So you're still slow, but at nearly 20 miles per hour, those devices become fast. I was thinking about this while you were off-riding these scooters. Uh, I was thinking, like, <laughs> could this be viable here? Like, not necessarily the services, but just having an electric scooter. And the thing that kept stopping me is, like, where do you park it? And I think that's still the problem that all of these people have, which is you just leave it on the sidewalk, which is not a good solution at all. But, like, let's say I'm going to the grocery store or to the mall. Like, what do I do with the electric scooter if I have to run errands? Like, it's very unclear what that etiquette is. And as we've talked about a few episodes ago, like, I am not the kind of person to push social boundaries. So I'm not going to be, like, the dick who's going to be, like, bringing the scooter with him inside the grocery store. And I've been hearing things like I know on Dubai Friday, which is another podcast I listened to, they had a challenge a couple of months ago, which was like, everybody bought a Segway. And now there are a bunch of people running Segways in Chicago and San Francisco because of the show. And it's like, when they go into the grocery store, they get off the Segway and they drag it into the store. And I would be like, so embarrassed Ooh. to be in their place yeah. that I would not want to do that. And I was thinking the same thing for electric scooters. So. I would maybe think about like maybe locking in like a bike or something, but oh well, like that, that part you arrive is a bit weird, but for those, you just lock it, stop your like renting session and then off you go, which kind of, kind of is more or less the same as the big C here in Montreal, but you need to properly lock them in a bike station, which to me, if you were to, if you want to be successful with those types of problems, I think that's the only problem they have right now is they're just like a pandemic. You see them everywhere. You see them in <laughs> ditch. You see them in back alleys. You see them at top of the mountains, like you said, where like, who just drop it there? There's Someone nothing. who loves playing Crackdown on the Xbox 360. Like, this is the only thing I can think of. Yeah. yeah. So like, to me, you're a bit skeptical about it, like, oh, it feels really Silicon Valley type of product. But then when you start to use them, and I could see them in, like, our city here, if they were properly implemented and approved by the city, that would be a nice service that would use. Speaking of the price, by the way, the price is not that cheap. Like, it's the f to unlock it, it's a dollar, and then you pay 15 cents a minute. So it's not by distance, but it's by time. And that can end up being quite expensive if you use them that much. I didn't know, I didn't see any option for Bird about that, but Lime offer a subscription service, which is maybe, I don't remember exactly if I think I've saw 29.99 per month. So not cheap. I think I saw something like 3.25 an hour was the average rate. 3.25, I would say it's a bit more than that because I think I've used them for, uh, maybe 15, 20 minutes and I got charged. The longest one was maybe 20 minutes and I got charged $3 and I had a dollar mm. off. So it was, yeah, it was not cheap. And especially at that time, I realized via a friend that Lyft 
at amazing deals during the WWE. <laughs> I don't know why, but it's like, like to drive the same distance costs you about the same price, but you were in the left. So that was just crazy to me. Uh, but that's kind of my small and small tension about electric scooters. And I think we also checked that box, but uh, those scooters were really fun to use and fun to just wander around in San Jose. And because of them, I was able to go to the small uh, San Jose Japan town and uh, go to a sushi bar. Yay! Yes. And I see any good pictures. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. The sushis were nice, by the way. I can imagine. So we can move into the uh, WWC topic. So like last year, uh, Yannick and I decided to do something different for WWCs. And since the second year we do it, I guess it's no longer different. But what we want to do is not recap the news. So I'm guessing you can do that. But if you are somebody that is not a developer or somebody that is a developer but on another platform, it could be interesting to learn about some of the new stuff that has been announced at WWC. So that's why Yannick and I will go through four sessions. And I guess we'll do round robin. Uh, so we'll do one each, one each. And I guess you don't mind if I start? Sure. Do you have any other opening statements before I do? It was a good WWDC. Wow. Uh, okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the most nondescript statement I could make. Yes. Okay. That's for sure. Uh, maybe to comment on your nondescripted statement, I do agree that it was a nice WDC, maybe a bit light on features, but I think that's what everybody was expecting. So that was not a surprise. But to me, it felt like if you look at the news, it was a lot of small, nice features being introduced all at once. And at, if you accumulate them all together, it really, you realize that it's quite packed in feature when at first it doesn't seem so. And we will talk about my first, first for first. Actually, nice. I just want to reply to that before we go. One of the things I noticed, I don't, I don't want to jinx it because everybody's going to say this, but. Everybody keeps wishing for a Snow Leopard release, and everybody has kept saying for, I think, the past three years, like, oh, finally, they've made a Snow Leopard release. And every time we realize, like, it's more buggy than the year before. (laughs) So we're not quite there. But this year feels more like a Snow Leopard release in that Snow Leopard had not very many user-facing features and a lot more underlying technologies that developers could take advantage of. And it feels like that is where the emphasis was this year, as we'll see in our following sessions yes and one of the main small features that that made me like burst into happiness i think i heard you yell on the stream when it was happening (laughs) might have been hard because i was not at the keynote i was at the altconf presentation of it but yes maybe i yelled so much that my voice from the marriott next to the mckinley center Went into the mechanic center and then into the recording mic. That, that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> actually, the, the one place I think I actually did hear you was uh, during the talk show live. I think somebody said, like, uh, probably Gruber said, CarPlay with third-party navigation apps. Nobody thought they would do it. And then there was, like, a huge woo and I thought that was you. <laughs> uh, that might have been me. If I recall correctly, I kind of like, why? With the three p- other people that said, yeah. That sounds that about right. <laughs> so it might have been me. And uh, yes, I was close to the recording stuff. So who knows? I, I should have uh, should watch the video again to see. But yes, we're talking about CarPlay. I teased it a lot in the opening. And we will be looking at session 213 named CarPlay Audio and Navigation Apps. And Navigation Apps. Because yes, this year, Apple is letting map developers 
build their own map apps for CarPlay. The only missing features for the three time a year I use Waze. And it's funny because like we said in the opening state in the follow-up section, I haven't updated my infotainment system on my car to use the Ford one, which they have a deal with uh, Waze, like I said in my last episode. So um, session 213 was kind of aimed uh, quickly um, at developers that do CarPlay stuff. And they kind of did a refresher about what is CarPlay and blah, 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 different inputs. You can have a touch controller. Like the goal of CarPlay obviously is to project your iPhone screen on your car infotainment screen and also abstract every, all of the, all of the different input devices you can have in a car, different screen sizes, the, the, the light sensor to detect whether the car is in low light environment. All of this is abstracted by CarPlay and then it lets you focus on on developing the interface or somewhat the interface. They also did the reminder of the type of app you can build for uh, CarPlay. If you go through them quickly, we have the manufacturer apps, which is mainly you have full UI get access to CarPlay. And I wish it was open and it's still not, but well, messaging apps, VOIP apps, audio, and now the new one is navigation. A quick reminder about what uh, audio is. So the way the audio apps works is Apple designed some templates. Um, you can use three different APIs to provide data to those templates inside of your application. And most of those APIs, if you already support the now playing screen and the now playing widget, you should already be uh, using them. So making uh, exposing your data to CarPlay should be as easy as making sure you uh, fill in the appropriate data in MP now playing info center and MP remote command center. And of course, uh, to fill in the template, there's other objects that won't go through them. But in a way, um, if you've used CarPlay, it's a list and it's it, there's tabs. Uh, there's a tab UI, so you can have multiple tabs like if we take Apple Music, for example, the For You, the Radio, and each tab have their own list with sub-list in them. All of this you don't have access directly. You just need to provide the data to your app and or refresh the data in that list if something changes. I just thought of an alternate use for that API, which is they should allow DJ software to get access to those data providers and allow you to load music from apps that are not Apple Music. That that could be something feasible, I would say, because uh, this browse the data provider that source data it is called MP Playable Content, and there's also MP Playable Content Manager, and this one is really you have a data source and you have a delegate that tells you play this for me in a way, so that's quite simple, and that could also be applied to DJ App, and all of that stuff sort of has a parallel in Siri shortcuts, which we'll discuss later. Yep. There's no new features for audio apps. Uh, the main f- new feature is really the common theme on iOS 12 is they made a joke that MP playable content was remastered for iOS 12. Oh, which, God. Yes, they made a lot of audio joke and like car navigation jokes in that session. That was funny and cringy at the same time. <laughs> but all of this is to say that they improve performance greatly. At the same time as saying like, you know, we improve the performance of these APIs for audio apps, but also let us let 
like let's make sure that you know the best practices so and it's funny because the best practices that they've they, they talked uh, about reminded me a lot of the UI table best practices because like I said audio apps are just list of content so uh, in the API you have an API that is just reload data and they're like don't reload all the data all the time you should only reload data when it's needed you should and if most changes are just like you need to change one item or two items you should really use the APIs that let you update specific rows by saying you want to use the begin updates and then do your updates and then end the updates blocks with an end updates uh, call to the API so that section of the best practices reminded me like they don't want to tell you that all of this UI is based on UI table view and it's kind of underlying maybe animation or uh, update uh, refreshing APIs but all of those nomenclature for this exact API closely resembles the best practices and the nomenclature of UI table view itself and those also are also best practices so that that part made me laugh is like yes we improve the performance but also make sure to like help you improve the performance of your app by not doing too much updates or too much full-on let's clear the cache and refresh everything but there's an extra reason why they would do that right because like i'll be honest I very rarely actually used the uh, replacement, like the row replacement uh, handlers. I pretty much always called re- reload data. And the reason for it is there was basically no performance penalty to do it on iPhone. Like, I guess it depends on an application thing. Like if you're doing crazy cell layouts, like the Facebook app, maybe reload data is a horrible idea. But for most of the applications that I developed when I was making them, there was no real cost to doing reload data over the other things. And as a developer, it is much simpler to just say reload data than doing the other stuff. However, on the watch and on CarPlay, you are ferrying information over a network connection. And if it's Bluetooth, it can be rather unreliable. And in those cases, I have noticed massive differences in using reload data versus um, just replacing individual rows because there's significantly less overhead in transmitting that data over the wire or over Bluetooth to the CarPlay thing. Although, now that I'm thinking about it, CarPlay is really just a remote display, so that has jack shit to do with what I'm saying. Uh, don't forget that uh, last year they introduced wireless, uh, last year or two years ago, but they introduced wireless CarPlay which doesn't use bluetooth but still yeah but i mean like the computer is in the phone it's not in the thing so the wireless thing has jack shit to do with carplay actually fair but like i wouldn't be surprised that there's a navigation issue and to be honest in the watch it's more or less the same now because all the extension run on the watch not on the phone well but mm, we'll uh, leave mm, that aside uh, yes we'll mm. leave that aside <laughs> sure <laughs> <laughs> I don't, uh, but, I don't want to incriminate all of the watch OS developers, but you're all doing it wrong. <laughs> Except for Omni Group. We love you guys. Okay. Uh, another quick aside that it was funny part of that is they talk about the data retention and also when your phone is unlocked, unlocked to make sure that most cases you shouldn't be looking in your phone. So in most cases, your phone will end up being plugged in, but locked. So make sure that your data is available, even if your phone is locked. And also that part made me laugh so much because Apple is so bad at it, but they're like, yeah, be wary of like unreliable network connectivity. You know, your users might be driving in poor or no cell uh, connection zone. Um, but you know what? Like Apple Music on CarPlay is super bad at this. So it's f- <laughs> this made me like I 
just laugh so much when it's like yeah developers be wary of relying too much on network connectivity and all of that stuff like mm-hmm. sure but you're really bad about that <laughs> and last but not least a tip and that is also super applicable to uh, typical iOS app is they want you to anticipate user behavior and there's a new API. I don't think, they, I don't think it's new, but they like strongly suggest you an API to use an API that is called begin loading child items, which would call you to say like load the child items for me, even if I might not need them, uh, but at least they are there. So the best example they show, they bring uh, the, the mode is you're in quote unquote not Apple Music because they created their own audio app, but it's not Apple Music. And they select a to uh, they select something to play. I think it's a playlist because it was something like they they want to mix art music and sriracha sauce. It was a bit weird that demo, but uh, they select a playlist and it spins, 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 and spins. What they're saying here is you should start already playing some part of that playlist. So when the user taps on it, it should autoplay stuff like that. But all of this was part of previous sessions. Just couple of best practices reminders what changed in ios 12 which was not so much mainly from what i understood internal stuff that you will benefit for mostly free now we are moving to the big new feature for carplay in ios 12 and it's third-party navigation apps if you remember my carplay episode most of the carplay apps rely on existing apis the voice and messaging app are relying on Siri and all of that stuff. Stuff you should have already integrated also with uh, the end off and off and all of that uh, stuff. Like I said, the audio apps rely on the media player API that you are supposed supposedly already using if you want to have um, the best integration with iOS. With third-party navigation apps, they add to build something new because there was nothing to kind of drive this interaction and that's what they did they built a carplay framework called carplay.framework how original of course and third-party navigation apps use the same approach as navigation app there are all templates that apple wants you to conform with you'll see if you look at some of the screenshots and demo they've done like and even the screenshot that um the demo of ways in google maps and the chinese one i forgot its name but they look familiar while they look familiar for those apps while also looking familiar if you use Apple Maps through CarPlay. And the reason why is the way they're saying it is there's iOS that drives the typical like grid list of apps. That's you can touch that. Then you have access to the UI view where you can put when you can draw anything that is non-interactive. So what they're saying there is that's where you draw your amazing and beautiful and like on-brand mile uh, map tiles and yes you if you look at the code you have access to a direct ui window so you can put your own view controller in that all that stuff but the important part is there shouldn't have been any interactive and then carplay would put on top of your map tiles in that window its own template that is for third-party navigations do you know if that ui window can use metal that's a good question. They didn't talk about metal or anything about that. Uh, the only demo they show is because right now in the app delegate, UI app delegate, there's a new uh, method called application did connect car interface controller to window. Mm. So you have in this one, you have three parameters, the app delegate, the CP interface controller, 
which we'll talk just in a bit. And then the last parameter is a UI window. And like I said, the window, the, what if the mode is you assign it to a root view controller and they don't show the content of the root view controller they were talking about. They assume and they were telling the developers that this view controller should be responsible to drawing your map tiles without giving too much detail. Uh, the other parameter, the CP interface controller, is the object to interface to CarPlay. So, and it is the interface to talk to the templates and there's multiple templates that you can use in a third-party navigation app. The first one is called the map template and it's a UI that goes on top of the window that has your tiles and it can has a navigation bar that contains four buttons. So two on the leading or the left side, if you're in left to right language, and then two on the trailing side, so on the right side. And also you can have also have four other buttons that are overlaid over your map. And if you've seen screenshot and I strongly invite you to go and just skim through that session and go see the demos and the screenshot they posted, you'll see that the navigation bar looks like any navigation bar on uh, CarPlay, especially the maps one. And then the button are like key colored, like all the buttons in CarPlay because those like you're just passing a view to your buttons. Of course, they're like providing more templates to build custom UI, but you are never building UI yourself. It's always based on this kind of data source approach where you're passing data to a template and the template will call you back on the delegate if something happened. So another example of uh, templates, you have a grid template, which is an array of eight buttons in a grid format. And you have, you can have like Im an image and a title for each button. And you also have the list template, which reminds me of uh, the typical list you can find in music apps. Last but not least, there's also the search template, which abstract all of the different inputs. So if you have a touchscreen, you can have an on-screen keyboard. If you have a knob or a joystick or a wheel, it will do that for you. It will have kind of a linear keyboard and also it will do um, character detection if you can draw on some of those uh, keypads and all of that stuff like all of this has just become a template and it will just like provide you with the search term and your app will do this what's quite interesting with the uh, cp interface control it kind of reminds me about the uh, it kind of reminds me the way that watch apps are done and take everything i say about watch app with a grain of salt but if i recall correctly when you interact with watch apps on the developer side, you have a kind of a main object that is like your connection to the watch. And I think it's the watch interface controller or something. Watch connectivity the, framework. Yeah, yeah, but the, the, this interface controller, I, if I recall correctly, there's an object that is named closely like that in watch, connect, watch connectivity. I don't think that object is in watch connectivity. I think it's in watch kit. But yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that object is really like, I want to send data to the watch. And Interface controller is more or less the same as uh, that object. It reminded me of that object in the few sessions and few quick demo I did in the simulator uh, for WhatsApp. And it's really your object to drive all of these templates. Last but not least, uh, you can also have like a lot of like alerts and all of that stuff. Like the experience feels like Apple Maps on CarPlay, but with your own tiles. So I'm eager to see what. A third-party navigation app will be able to do, especially some some apps like 
ways because the main reason is it's good at yes rewriting but also saying there's a problem of it or can you confirm that there's a police car ahead, or there's a pothole there so i i'm eager to see how they will be able to bring those good and amazing ways functionality to the carplay interface because apple is providing developers with canvas that can be somewhat customized but customized in a way that they already have assume or plan that you can do because you're like any carplay apps you're not directly drawing ui controllers in carplay the carplay interface itself is doing that for you and it's proxying that for you so real-time follow-up wk interface controller does exist however it's not what you think it is it is just like a ui view controller so that's not what you were thinking of you were thinking of wc session Ah, okay Okay, I'm just mixing it up, but the, the the name felt familiar. Yeah. But I was mixing it up. So, yeah, CP interface controller quite reminds me of WC session. Last but not least, I know it was something that we waited a long time for navigation apps on the iPhone itself when iPhone OS launches, and it is turn by turn navigation. And yes, it is supported, and there's a way for third-party navigation to provide to the nav template your own turn button navigation and that's really nice and also what's super interesting is that data that you provide to the carplay interface can also be shown to the user even if your user is in a different app so you'll still be waked up or called via the delegate there's a couple of delegate methods that you can still say like oh here's the next step in my turn button or here's an alert i want to present as maybe a banner and all of that stuff so watching the session like i think that's sometimes a problem when i watch not i was about to say random session but just like outside the box that session for me as an ios dev in carp uh, in uh, wwc because it's stuff that i would like to use or stuff i would like to play with but like i'm not a maps designer like i never like work on a maps app right and there's a limited number of devs that would find these apis useful but the way they are described and explained uh, by the apple engineers seems really interesting and also i'm really curious at use that i want to use them but like without having a real navigation app it's, it's kind of hard to do right because what they're saying is like here's the interface we 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 focus on making that simple so you can focus on bringing your rich, nice styles to CarPlay users. And that's it. Last point about CarPlay itself uh, and CarPlay development is in Xcode 10. It finally, quote unquote, uh, includes a CarPlay simulator. So for years, we had an external display simulator where we can like test AR play apps. And now uh, Xcode 10 will come with a CarPlay simulator it seemed unclear, or maybe I need to read to the documentation a bit more, but it seemed unclear to me whether the CarPlay simulator is present, whether you have the CarPlay entitlement or not. I hope that it's without the entitlement, so you don't have to, you can just have fun and try to build CarPlay apps yourself before asking Apple for a specific CarPlay entitlement, because still, uh, they confirm again this year that CarPlay apps, you need to talk to them, have kind of a private exchange, and then they will give you a specific entitlement. It's not something you can just turn on in Xcode as far as I understood with this session. If I recall correctly, the simulator has always been available to people who had the entitlement before. They got a separate build of Xcode that had it. Oh, 
so that would mean that now the simulator is just on by default for everybody. I believe so. And what this means mm. is that basically everybody is on the same App Store release of the simulator, uh, not simulator, Xcode. That would make sense, especially if they had a different build. I'm sure it was a pain in the butt to keep two different builds and blah, blah, blah. This is what I recall from what like Marco said in the past. I could be yeah, wrong. That, but that kind of rings a bell. So I'm, who knows? Maybe a car play developer with character? Who knows? Judging by what Marco has been tweeting today and yesterday, it seems like the simulator isn't quite there either. So, Oh, <laughs> yeah. Hopefully it might, come, uh, might be better in a couple of bellows, but if you rely on the simulator, like sometimes maybe we might have to wait for a couple of years for the simulator to be better. At least it's not the Android emulator. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, that one, if it didn't change, uh, that one was slow when the last time I tried it. Yes. Super slow. It's very bad. So that's it for session 213, CarPlay Audio and Navigation Apps. I'm super excited. I'm, like, I'm already really pumped about what people will do. And hopefully Google will be like their one, day one, hopefully, finger crossed. Judging by how quickly they've adopted drag and drop in Google Docs, wouldn't count on it anytime soon, but who knows? Yeah. So let's move to your first session. All right, I don't have the session numbers because I have no idea where to find them in the app, but this is introducing CreateML. It is the spiritual successor to whatever the hell the session I did last year was uh, about CoreML, uh, and we're going to recap that a little bit. So CoreML gives you an easy way to integrate a machine learning model into your application. With three lines of code, you were able to integrate real-time on-device machine learning into your application. Uh, however, one of the big questions last year is CoreML let you integrate an existing model into your application, but you had no idea really how to get a model to begin with. Uh, last year, they were given they were giving developers two options. You could go download a pre-baked model uh, on the Apple website, or you could use CoreML tools that would convert a model that was trained using one of many model training frameworks that exist out there into a CoreML model. However, if you don't know anything about machine learning, that probably all sounded like Chinese. And this year, they're trying to resolve that. By the way, before I continue, yep. session 703. Cool. Uh, you're going to have to do that for my next session, too. <laughs> Kept the window open, so. Cool. Uh, just an added note for statistics sake. Uh, at WWDC 2017, only five uh, conversion tools for uh, machine learning models existed. However, now they support all the major training frameworks, which means you can pretty much use any tool you want to create a machine learning model and convert it into something that CoreML can use. However, this year, Apple wanted to give their developers something native, something swifty, and something that integrates directly with their developer tools. And CreateML has the aim of demystifying machine learning for app developers. So now they have a complete workflow for anyone who wants to integrate machine learning into their application. You can build a model with CreateML, you can integrate it into your application with CoreML, and you can build your app around it in Xcode, all with one language and one set of developer tools. So they support three major use cases in this initial release, images, text, and tabular data. So an example of what you can do with images is custom image classifiers for text, sentiment analysis, and topic classifiers. Uh, There's also text tagging, uh, which is when you give categories to each individual word in a bunch of text. And there's tabular data, which is used for more abstract stuff like predicting wine quality based on chemical composition. Your typical machine learning workflow consists of many steps. So first you have to define the problem. Then you have to get data that you use to train a model to deal with that problem. Then you evaluate the model by testing it against another set of data that wasn't your initial training test of data. And then you export the model 
to be used in your application. And one thing to note is that data train evaluate is sort of a nonstop cycle of improvement uh, that you keep doing even once you've done your initial version of your model. So CreateML can help you with those last four steps. Data, uh, CreateML provides a standard set of data structures and primitives that are understood by the machine learning training code. Training, one line of code to train your your uh, model, and it is optimized to make the fullest of your max hardware. Evaluate, there's built-in evaluation, so you just call one line and you point it to a different directory and it will automatically test the accuracy of your model. And export, well, it's built into Xcode, so you can just drag and drop the model directly into your project and there you go. So the way this session will split up is that they did each use case individually. I'm going to start with images because it was, first of all, the first one. And second of all, there's a lot of redundant stuff from use case to use case. So let's get ready with this fruit classifier. So step one, you collect training data. Training data is supported in a variety of formats. Uh, you can just provide a dictionary of strings to an array of images, and it can handle that just fine. Or you can do uh, folders for each bucket that you want to classify with a bunch of photos in it, or one big folder with uh, the name of the bucket and a sequential number.jpg, for example. Then for the training step. For images, CoreML already ships with a mature object classification model via the Vision Framework. We talked about this briefly last year. You can use a technique which is called transfer learning, which retrains the last few layers of that model with knowledge of your app-specific data. So for more information about this, you could go check out the Vision with CoreML session uh, that they did this year. Um, but very briefly, briefly, uh, it reduces the training time from hours to minutes or seconds, depending on the number of images you have. And it reduces the model file size from hundreds of megabytes to megabytes or kilobytes. Because again, the base model is included with the operating system, so you don't have to worry about it. You're just adding two or three layers on top of that that solidify what specifically it's meant to identify in your application. So then, of course, they do the demo. And interestingly enough, this is where I get really excited because the environment that they demo all this stuff in is a Swift playground, and it's sort of meant to be used from a Swift playground. All of the parts of this process has UI that can show up in a Swift playground, and it has rich interaction, like drag-and-drop input from the finder. So when the model is done training, you can just drag in the set of test data into your playground. It'll test the accuracy of your model and show you right in line all of the images, what that image was identified at, what you said it was, and at the top of it, an accuracy percentage readout of basically what you would consider to be sort of a unit test of your model. And then you can drag the model out of your playground into your app bundle. And all of this can be done in Swift Playgrounds, or you can do it programmatically or automated. One thing to note is that this does appear to be the first Swift-only API that Apple has made that is platform-specific. What I mean by that is they did a network framework, I believe, last year or a couple months ago. I don't quite remember what release that was tied to. Um, but the network framework is basically like the Swift equivalent to the C-Sockets API. Uh, that has been announced this WDC. Like network, it's called Network Framework. Yeah, I, I mean, I've already heard about it like before WWDC through like Swift Dev Channel, so I know it existed, oh. so I don't remember when exactly it came out, but I know I've seen sessions explaining the network framework uh, in the program, but I wasn't too sure what the timetable was. But if you exclude like the network thing, which is sort of a base foundation part of Swift, this is like the first iOS-specific Swift API that I can think of that they've actually made, which is really interesting. 
Right. I think the correct statement would be like app level because it's also available for the Mac. So it's not only iOS. Oh, right. Well, I mean like so platform yeah, level, be... not foundation, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really like uh, app development level and not, yeah. Sure. That's good. And like it makes rich usage of stuff that you can do in Swift. It still doesn't feel quite as functional as what like the trendy Swift developers are doing where they're like, we need lambdas everywhere and shit. Um, we need to map the shit out of everything. Um, it's somewhere between that and richer Objective-C as Swift, right? It's a more moderate approach to adopting Swift, but it makes good use of enums with arguments and stuff like that in really clever ways that make developing using it great. I know there's this huge debate right now uh, out there about whether Swift is good or bad for new developers. We're not going to get into that this episode, but I would love to do an episode about it at some point. But this is a very reasonable Swift API, if even if you've only used Objective-C until now. Moving along, natural language. So as I said, there are two major tasks that uh, can be used for this, text classification or word tagging, although this session only focused on how to do text classification, and they deferred to another session for the word tagging stuff. Uh, I believe that session was an internationalization session, uh, so go look that up if you're interested. There's not much to say about this one because it is basically exactly the same thing as images. Uh, there's already text classification model and the operating system uh, that was included last year. Um, so basically, you're just doing transfer training on top of that. Uh, you can import your data as CSV or JSON in addition to the folder structures that I discussed in the image section. And training is simplified greatly because normally when you do text classification, you have to worry about a bunch of details like identifying what language something is, tokenization of everything, and a bunch of other steps. And here you just give the input, the output, and it handles all the rest for you, which is really nice. So that's a for natural language. And then the most interesting one for me is tabular data. So they've created this new class called ML Data Table. And this is my new favorite class at WDC. Wow. So your rows in this table contain example data. Columns are called features. And there's one special column you're going to define in your data table called target, which is the value you're trying to predict as a function of one or many other features. You can import data tables from CSV or JSON, but you can also introduce your own adapter code to convert from arbitrary data formats to ML Data Table. Accessing columns can be done with subscript notation, like you would um, dictionary or whatever. Basic arithmetic operations are supported on columns with Swift operator support, so you can add or divide columns of data together. Everything is optimized for performance thanks to lazy evaluation and vector operations. And what's really, really cool is you can use link-like features uh, filters on these data tables to say, show me all of the house data where the square foot is greater than or equal to 2,000 square feet. You can do this stuff, and again, lazy eval vector operations super fast. For someone who uses Link all day long on the .NET stack, the idea of something vaguely similar to it coming to ML, uh, to uh, create ML, is really cool. And I could see myself, not I, I'm not encouraging you to actually do this in an application, but I can see a world in which you could actually use this to do really cool data processing inside your application, even ignoring the entire machine learning stuff. Like this is just a genuinely useful class to know about, period. So again, like this entire uh, machine learning model you're developing is meant to predict one specific column of data based on one or more combinations of other columns. And luckily enough, there are nine different types of algorithms you can use to train machine learning model to do this each only turn takes 
two arguments to train your data and what column is the target. The rest is handled automatically. And if you don't know anything about machine learning and you don't know which algorithm you want, use ML regressor, which is a generic function you can call, which will train all of them and then choose the one that performs the best for you. The key uh, philosophy around create ML is focus on what the task you want to accomplish is, not the nitty gritty implementation details. And once again, like training and evaluation, once you've actually just run that line of code, everything else is just as simple as it is for images or for text. So that is the entire set of functionality that they showed in introducing create ML. One of the things I can say is that it is limited to basically all of the kinds of stuff that was easy to do in core ML last year. Uh, so there was the vision in the na- uh, the machine learning, uh, not machine learning, the natural language frameworks, which were announced last year. Those basically, they just gave you tools that allow you to create models that can feed into those frameworks, basically. Because last year, the answer to that was figure it out. And not a lot of people figured it out, apparently. Um, and then there's this whole new tabular data stuff, which is really, really interesting. And I believe like this is probably what they're using for a series of shortcuts light spoiler for later, uh, to try and predict when you're going to do things or what uh, shortcuts you're going to be doing when. You've got a big table full of information of donations from various users and you are predicting things. So I'm, I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> and all of this seems very useful. However, of course, it's not going to solve every problem. And if you want to solve the problems that this is not well suited for, you still have to go out and use other stuff. Now, luckily, as I said uh, two episodes ago, TensorFlow, which is Google's um, machine learning training framework, now uses Swift. So if you are comfortable in Swift and you want to do more advanced machine learning stuff, then you can go use TensorFlow, use Xcode, and every sort of advantage that Apple gave you to push you towards CreateML also exists for TensorFlow. So that is what I have to say for introducing CreateML. And now we can go to Decadivia's second session. Yeah, before we do so, I would like to note that uh, at Alcom this year, there was a lot of um, like machine learning presentations and talks, one of which was describing what Apple kind of didn't tell us last year. It was like, <laughs> how do you train a model, for example? And uh, the presenter went through all, not all the way, it was just a way of using some of the Linux-based tools, and one of which, uh, most of which requires big GPUs uh, inside of a machine, and was demoing how he was creating a specific model using some, I don't recall the name, I should have to look at my outconf note, but uh, one of the like popular tools that runs on Linux and also can be run using the uh, Amazon web services. So the guy was just like using big GPUs from Amazon for a couple of minutes, or no, a couple of hours, and then paying for it. And he's like, well, the price is okay, but don't leave it open. Uh, and that was quite interesting. So for maybe bigger usage, you still need to rely on those solutions. But from the also other demos that I've seen live of uh, CreateML, whether it was at WDC or at AllConf, like people train models in like five minutes. Like it's crazy. You know what service that guy should be using? Oh, no, no, no. Not the <laughs> gaming, gaming PC, PC as a yes, dot yes. business. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Good that's memes. true. Yeah. Okay, what's your next session? Next session, number 601, live screen broadcast with replay kit. All right. I think, I think we talked a bit 
about uh, Replicate in the past, but not in great uh, detail. We had follow up a couple of episodes. I think like after you did your episode about Twitch, the next few episodes I had follow up on applications that tried to broadcast it Twitch using Replicate, and there was this really weird one with a weird name that I don't remember, and that's all I remember about it. Yep. Yeah, so this session is describing because uh, Replicate was introduced two years ago. And last year, Apple changed changes in great uh, details, but they didn't do a session about those. Um, so if we recap a bit what Replicate is, it's a way to capture your screen, the application audio, your microphone, and even your camera only on iOS. So you can record and share or even broadcast live. So there is uh, two ways of doing that. So you need to have an app that builds a replay kit broadcast extension so this extension has the ability to upload your video on all of this to a remote server and display it to others and of course a way to start the broadcast uh, apple gave a lot of examples uh, of what you've seen people do with replay kit and i'll go through uh, some of them uh, of course as its name suggests you can replay stuff or just broadcast gameplay to a uh, mob crush and our YouTube, so I guess two good, two big partners that Apple has. One of the ones that I've learned recently, but it's not because of WebEx, uh, it's because at work we use Zoom, but mirroring your iPhone screen on a WebEx call or any other platform, like video conferencing call. Uh, also, a great one uh, is support customer remotely via TeamViewer QS. So TeamViewer that was that exists for, existed for years on the desktop is now also using ReplayKit to do customer support via their TeamViewer iOS app. And the last example that we're giving is a stream a drawing app to Facebook because I didn't know, but it seems that Facebook implemented ReplayKit. Oh yeah, that's so, true. Uh, I think we also did that as follow up one week. Um, see, I already forgot. I forgot about Facebook being there, but when they, they showed it uh so um yeah one of the example one of the uh one of our follow-up was like yeah uh twitch don't want to implement this because some um, specific the technical decision that they don't like that apple did but oh well so it was really funny that the apple mentioned youtube and facebook but not the biggest uh like live broadcasting service for games twitch because it doesn't support it uh but they go through uh, the main two differences between Replicit 1 and Replicit 2. So Replicit 1 launched two years ago and Replicit 2 last year. So if you don't know, uh, Replicit was a bit clunky at first. And I'm surprised that they thought that it would work correctly the first way. <laughs> Not that it would be broken, but that people would like be okay being limited. So the way... Let me rephrase that a bit so in replay kit one they call it in-app broadcast meaning that the app that you want to broadcast should tell replay kit hey i want to broadcast where should i be broadcasting of course the second you exit the app the broadcast would either pause or after a certain delay it would completely stop and maybe it's because in replay kit 2 they did something called ios system broadcast that now it seems why haven't you done that in the first place but to me, I can see why maybe Replicate was not a great Replicate One was not a great success because of course I just want to broadcast my whole device like if I were on the Mac because if I record correctly on the Mac it's mostly like you broadcast everything or like by default the apps would let you broadcast everything but you can like limit 
And it seems that on iOS, they decided that in Repeat 2, the approach of broadcasting everything is the better one. So, of course, like I said, in app, you start, the, you go to the app that you want to broadcast. This app will start at the broadcasting. And of course, you need an app to broadcast content. And then you need the broadcaster app that contains the extension. In iOS 12, iOS 11 and above, you have this definition of the iOS system broadcast. And as the name suggests, the system will trigger the broadcasting, whether your app officially support broadcasting or not. It should, right now, what Apple is saying is any app developer should assume that you might be, uh, uh, your app might be broadcasted if the user decides to do so. And in iOS 11, they decided to add the uh, recording screen uh, picker or the broadcast, system broadcast picker in control center. So you needed to, first of all, you needed to go to settings and control center and then customize the control you see and then bring the recording control, which eh, really it's really the system broadcasting picker because screen recording is by itself kind of an Apple broadcast extension. That's kind of what I've learned and read between the lines during this session. And Apple realized quite quickly, and I'm sure there was a lot of bugs and radars feel about that, that this experience was a bit of clunky, not really user-friendly, especially for apps. Like, I could imagine an app like uh, either WebEx or even, like, TeamViewer, that if you want to help people debug, it might be a bit late to tell them, oh, yeah, you need to do that on your iPad and that and that and that. Only the fact that you need to install another app for it to work might be a big burden. So then modifying your iPad settings to make it work is clunky. So Apple announced in iOS 12 that they are bringing this system broadcast picker from Control Center inside of your app with a single view name RP System Broadcast Picker View. It's something you can initialize in code or by using the custom class feature of UI view in interface builder. And that will make a big white record button that will trigger this um, broadcast picker inside of your app. Of course, also your user might have a lot of broadcast extensions, depending on the type of user that is broadcasting. So uh, Apple also added a, uh, a property named preferred extension, which you should set to a specific bundle ID of an extension. So it kind of auto selects uh, the preferred one, but you still, still can change it. It's just, I guess if I recall correctly, they said it goes at the top or it gets pre-selected uh, to go to faster, um, faster broadcasting. After that, so after introducing all of this and reminding us how uh, broadcasting works on iOS, they also went in, like, they went a long time and sometimes, I wouldn't say it's complex, but they were giving tips and tricks and they were also describing their best practices about developing a broadcasting extension. And uh, there was a lot about, like, uploading videos properly without consuming too much battery, which that I will totally skip. But <laughs> they made it quite clear that your app that contains the extension is really for handling the authentication to your broadcasting service and also to set the broadcasting details because the extension is only for enabling simple and uploading to your third-party service. And of course, uh, not enabling, encoding the samples, whether it's the app itself, the audio, the microphone, all of that, the extension only does that. The, uh, the extension should rely on your main app to make sure that it's authenticated and it should push back the user to the app 
if it needs to do so. Also, and also to get some metadata that you want to assign uh, to a broadcast. A good example of which metadata you want to assign to a broadcast, if you're broadcasting games and you want to make sure that this broadcast goes in the... It's funny because the example they gave for the, the, the game metadata was... Oh, I'm broadcasting for Angry Birds 2, which is like, what, five years old at this point? Even, Pretty much, even yeah. Older. Yeah, that that part made me laugh. It's like, you're really... Is it even 64-bit? I don't know, but the example is like, type of metadata is the type of game because you want to show on your website or in the app uh, the broadcast for a specific game. So you want to make sure that your broadcast goes in the right bucket for the game. And the game chosen was Angry Birds, which made me laugh. But that's the type of the metadata you should... Uh, see and that is not to be set by extension but by the container app itself also i'm not sure if it's new but or it's a reminder but it seems that there like a lot of their best practices and or examples are contained into an xcode template for extension so a lot um, all i think at this point all of the app extension are uh, have their own template in xcode uh, and broadcast extensions are also there so it was a really really good demo i don't want to go to too much details because some of which i'm like not used to processing videos uh but they've demoed code to help you build a proper broadcast extension so that part i will defer you to the appropriate section of the video but the last part that was interesting for me as an ios app developer is because of the new way of broadcasting which it which is handled by the system you might not want your app to be broadcasted what do you mean i can't rebroadcast hbo now on fucking youtube what is this shit um i won't make any comments but i think a better example is you don't want to broadcast your maybe banking account to youtube maybe you want to show That's how rich fair. you are to the people but uh, apple is created a lot of APIs, uh, not a lot of, but created key APIs to make sure that you know if your app is being captured. So if you look, at, there's two things that is important. The first one is on UI screen, there's a property called is captured or captured. And also you can listen to a notification named UI screen captured did change notification to look whether your app is being captured. The only gotchas to these is it also affects AirPlay. So if your screen is being mirrored, this is going to be also triggered. And the only way to know whether you're being AirPlayed or broadcast is to look at the number of screen by using UI screen dot screens mm. and look at the number and detect if you've been, if UI screen dot is capture is to yes and then you only have one screen, it means that you're broadcast. If it's more than one screen, it means that you're using AirPlay. So you can do uh, something else. But that part to me was like, oh, okay, that's how the end all. Because what I liked about Air, uh, Replay Kit 1 is the user says, I only want to broadcast this app because the broadcast starts from the app. Now that it starts from the system or... Uh, now that it's time from systems of a control center, you might see, might show some private information uh, by accident. So you could use that to make sure that your app is not broadcast. But it might mean like Yannick was kind of trolling about that. You will never broadcast HBO Go on YouTube, for example. Uh, How am I going to bootleg my John Oliver videos now? True. 
and that's and that's I think and that's why they they've exposed this new button because the way they were describing it is the new RP system broadcast picker view is the hybrid approach between replay kit one and replay kit two. Replay kit two because you start the system broadcast inside your app and you can also stop it inside your app so it makes it easy to just start it from the app and then just let it there but something i realized by looking at the screenshot is when you trigger the broadcast picker whether it's from control center or your app there's a long message that says notification will still be shown we strongly suggest that you enable do not disturb to not leak personal information something like yep. better worded than my shitty sentences right now but just to say hey by the way we're not enabling do not disturb we're not turning off your notification they will still show and it's on you to end all this that's the thing i keep forgetting occasionally i stream ios games on twitch and that is the thing i keep forgetting to do is to put my phone on do not disturb before i go live on twitch yeah i'm surprised that it's not they didn't make it a thing of like I know that I'll be streaming a lot, broadcasting a lot, so just enable D&D all the time. It should be a setting, to be honest. Yeah, and with the new Do Not Disturb functionality, they should you should be able to say, Do Not Disturb until this broadcast ends, right? Because they've done that yep. for until my meeting ends, until I leave this location, all of that stuff. They should also do that for broadcasting. Hopefully, maybe they'll fix it. Plug, I guess that would be a good radar to fill. Or a good, yeah, what's the, I forgot the name of the app to fill in radars, but they're not really radars when you use a public beta and not the developer betas. I want, oh, is it? Now forgetting is this, if this app on iOS is just a facade to radar for customers or not, but it might be. Oh, well. The bug reporter app? Is it really named bug report on the public beta? Uh, I think it's something like that. Huh, okay. So this app, just say, Blah 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 blah. I want D and D to be on when I use Replay Kit too, stuff like that. And then they're going to be like, "Holy shit, someone uses this!" By the way, I went to go look up uh, Angry Birds two on Twitch, and somebody streamed it three days ago. So there you go. <laughs> ah, see, uh, that's quite interesting. Um, and last but not least, before I finish, and it's not exactly about the session, but it's about the session itself. Uh, of course, uh, it was Captain Obvious that I would talk about CarPlay, <laughs> but I didn't want. Come on. Are you really surprised that I'm talking about CarPlay as my first session? I'm no, no, no. But I'm, I thought you meant like we're going to talk about CarPlay inside the Replay Kit session. No, 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 no. We're not. What okay. I meant is, so no, we're not talking about CarPlay. But of course, CarPlay was Captain Obvious. I will choose this one. Yeah. But as my second one, I was like going through the list and I didn't choose it, but I choose it last night. And I was like, you know what? I know. Well, I don't want to spoil yours, but you said it's about shortcuts. Uh, I didn't want to choose something new, and I also didn't want to go to the middle stuff because <laughs> because who will understand it then? Fair, that's also true. I might not understand it and be not doesn't feel interesting. And I just saw this one popping. I was like, replay kit. I know Yannick and I talked about it, but I didn't ever look at sessions and like I got reminded about those features that I maybe used once and didn't click that it was driven by replay kit. So that was a. Uh, a really interesting session just to remind me of kind of an obscure feature or like an underused feature by myself as a user on iOS, but that uh, could be super powerful for just random stuff I can do in my iOS apps and also better 
protect my users depending on the need I need to do in my apps. So that was just like a nice left field session that I could talk in the podcast and also learn more about something that I might never use, but is super interesting. ReplayKit is one of those frameworks that is criminally underused by developers, and I don't want to give like all of the good app ideas away because I might try to write one of these, but Ooh. like podcasters who want to capture audio from VoIP calls, like, what the fuck are you doing not using ReplayKit to capture the audio from VoIP calls, and by the way, also the audio from the microphone? I'm just putting that out there, like, the tools are all there, you just have to make it work. Totally. Oh, totally. And it seems that with ReplayKit 2, they are, they've like built it in a way that it should be more user friendly and especially on iOS 12. Now the big question is, will Apple approve your app? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Are we ready for Siri shortcuts? I think we are. All right. So you've probably heard about Siri shortcuts. They are this new feature, which is being introduced in iOS 12. And I find they are being super overhyped, but we're going to leave that until the end. For now, just Enjoy the technical details. So shortcuts expose the capabilities of your apps to Siri. The main use case for this is they can now surface common tasks you do in search suggestions on the Siri watch face on the lock screen and in Siri itself. Now what is brand new is uh, if you support intent based shortcuts, which we will explain in a little bit, uh, you now have support for displaying custom UI in the Siri uh, screens, which you did not have the possibility of doing before, unless you were using one of the specifically supported domains, such as voice calling, ride sharing, uh, all those things. I don't want to go through all of them. And like shortcuts... This is where it gets sort of hard to explain. Shortcuts are invoked by a custom phrase. They are synchronized across all iOS devices, watch, and HomePod. And there's also this other thing, which is the Shortcuts app, which allows users to create custom shortcuts by creating a series of shortcuts that are provided by other apps that chain together. This is literally what Workflow used to be, except with added support for Siri shortcuts as actions within Workflow. So let's talk a little bit about adopting shortcuts. Shortcuts should represent a key function of your application or help users do things they already do in your app faster. They should be repeatable and executable at any time. Like you don't want to do something that, like you don't want to provide a shortcut to the system that is only useful if you're three screens deep in your application because if you are calling it from Siri, the context that you are assuming is there is not there. So there are uh, three main steps to doing this, to adopting shortcuts. There's defining a shortcut, donating a shortcut, and handling shortcuts. And there are two APIs to do this. So the first is NSUserActivity. Now, NSUserActivity is a name that should be familiar to most iOS developers because it is used by a whole bunch of stuff. It's used by Spotlight. It's used by a handoff. NSUserActivity, for people who are not familiar with it, is basically this object that says... Here is more or less the context for what is happening on screen right now. Uh, it's defined on the U- UI view controller uh, level. So each UI view controller can have an NS user activity that describes what is visible inside it. And if you want to use uh, NS user activity for shortcuts, you should be using them for simple shortcuts that merely open your application and go to a specific place in your app, but nothing more than that. And then there's intents, which run which can run without launching your application, although in some cases you can have completion workflows where uh, some information is missing from the context and you have to redirect to the app to finish the actual task. Um, and as I said, this allows you to present custom UI within Siri. So first I'm going to talk a little bit about what it looks like to support shortcuts within NS user activity. 
So declaring a shortcut, this is really simple. You just declare an NS user activity like you always did. Uh, it's really not hard. You probably already have this if you support handoff or if you support spotlight indexing. You have a, you, uh, an NS user activity bound to your UI view controller. You've already done this step. If not, it's pretty simple. Uh, you have a you have a thing where you give a string that represents more or less like this is the identifier of the type of user uh, activity that I have in my application. And then you can give it a dictionary of information, which is used to restore the, the context when you get the callback in your app delegate. Donating a shortcut. An NS user activity, this is actually really stupid. Uh, you just set a property on the NS user activity. In this case, it's is eligible for prediction. It needs to be set to true. And then you attach it to the visible view controller. And voila, you have donated a series shortcut. Uh, one thing that is important to note about this is you must have is eligible for search set to true for is eligible for prediction uh, to work. I'm not sure how this works because I'm not familiar enough with the Spotlight APIs, but that sounds to me like you can only have Siri shortcuts that are also going to show up in search, which kind of makes sense because Siri shortcuts show up in search as well, but um, not always clear. And then handling the shortcut, congratulations, this is the easiest part. Uh, you just implement the NS user activity restoration callback uh, like you would for handoff or for spotlight, and you just take the dictionary and you restore the state like you would for any other uh, NS user activity. You probably already have this implemented in your app if you're a good iOS developer. So NS user activity, like pretty much the only thing you have to do if you already support NS user activity in your application for other reasons is set a property to true and you, congratulations, you are donating series shortcuts. This is not hard. Intense is a little bit more complicated, but that's because it provides much richer support. So first, defining the shortcut. What type of intent do you want to use? There are two types of intents. There's built-in intents, which are the Siri kit domains that have been released over the past few years. And there are custom intents, which are new in iOS 12. So if built-in intents match your application's usage patterns, it is strongly recommended that you go ahead and adopt that. They have not uh, added any new built-in intents in iOS 12, so you cannot have any fancier series support. Uh, the custom intents, however, are this really weird thing. And this is part of the reason that actually watching the session has made me less excited about series shortcuts. Um... Custom intents provide a basic template for shortcuts and shortcut responses for a given verb. Uh, you can define 16 shortcut types per intent. To me, it sounds like you can have multiple intents per application, but it's still unclear. And uh, intent shortcuts that can be run entirely in the background are prioritized by Siri suggestions because they save more of the user's time than one that requires user intervention in your app. So... When you define a shortcut, you have the screen in Xcode, and it looks a lot like pretty much any of the screens that modify uh, project settings in Xcode. And you can tell it, okay, um, like the example they used in the demo was a soup ordering app. You can say, okay, one of the things you can do with my application is order soup. So you create, you go choose the verb order, and then uh, you say what parameters you want uh, for a soup order. So you can say, okay, I need a location and I need the items that you order. So for example, like a soup, soup with croutons, soup with peppers, whatever. Like that would be your items property. And then you would have the location where you want it delivered as location. Like this is literally the example that they had in the thing. And then you, your shortcut types would be, okay, one of the things I want to allow my users to do is order soup. And then I will redirect to the application to take their location. 
I can say order location, and then I'll send them to the app to select the soup. Or if you provide the soup and the location, I can do the entire thing in the background because I have all of the necessary information. And then I can provide as a shortcut, let's say, order tomato soup to Apple Park. And that would be a series shortcut that would be provided. And in fact, if you do the same thing regularly, because it's more specific, it would get priority over the other ones. And of course, there's a bonus given because it can run entirely in the background. So once you've defined your shortcut, it's time to donate the shortcut. So this is actually fairly similar to user activities. Uh, you instantiate the intent class. So like I said uh, in defining the shortcut, when you create your intent, in the background, what Xcode does is it generates a class that represents that intent. Uh, so you need to instantiate that intent class in your application and set its properties to the context necessary to recreate the current situation. It's very much like... NS user activity is basically this generic class that takes a dictionary of information. Whereas an intent class is a class that represents a very specific intent already. So you don't need like a, uh, a, a, an activity type property on this thing. Like the type is the type of the class. And then instead of having keys in the dictionary, those are just properties directly on that object. So it's sort of a different way of expressing a user activity, but with smarts that Siri can understand. So then you set the properties to the context necessary to recreate the current situation. And then you create an IN interaction, which is the actual donation object that you give to Siri that points to that intent instance. And you call the dot donate function on it and you've donated your shortcut. And then handling the shortcut, this is actually the part that is the dumbest in the whole thing. Uh, it literally is just an NS user activity restoration callback because Siri intents are properties on NS user activity. The more you know. I didn't know this until the very end. I was shocked. Um, but yeah, apparently just a property on NS user activity. So if you support NS user activity, you just have to check an extra uh, property on the object and you can use that more specific class to restore your context instead of using the NS user activity uh, dictionary. There's also another class called inRelevantShortcut, and this is a specific class that you use to expose shortcuts to the Siri watch face. And what this object has that is different from the rest of the stuff is you provide metadata about when your, your shortcut should be presented on the Siri watch face. And this also works even if you don't have a watch app, which is very useful. So if you want to do rich Siri watch face integration for your application, you don't need a watch app. You can just provide a relevant shortcut. The thing that is super unclear from this entire presentation is where intent extensions run. Uh, so if you have a custom intent in your application, you can create an intent uh, extension, which provides the custom UI implementation for your intent. But it's also not clear, like, does this get compiled for watchOS and for audio OS? And does it get put on those devices so that those devices can do those things when the phone is not present? Because the thing that is very worrying about this entire series shortcuts thing to me is if the phone has to be there, a lot of stuff becomes immediately less useful, especially on HomePod, because you can't necessarily guarantee that the phone is going to be there 100% of the time. And if it's necessary to run shortcuts, that sort of doesn't really make Siri that much more useful. The next topic is optimizing for suggestions. So there are multiple factors that are used uh, when determining what to present to the user as uh, series suggestions. Time, uh, day of week, time of day, location. Uh, if you have significant location tracking uh, 
enabled in your privacy settings. It will bind various things that, uh, it will bind intent donations to the location in which they happen so that if you always do things in a specific space, like I get to work, I launch like some app to interact with something at work, uh, it will be more likely to present it when it sees that I'm at work. You can set required user info keys on NS user activities to give Siri a hint as to what keys it should be using to determine patterns. So an example that they gave of this is you might have something in your app that supports handoff like a scroll position so that if you hand off to your Mac, you click on the icon on your Mac and you're exactly at the same scroll position. Well, it's not useful for Siri to use the scroll prediction to predict when you're going to be clicking on uh, doing specific activities so you can tell it no this is not a required user info key so please don't use it when trying to determine what shortcuts you're going to be showing to people because it's irrelevant to the actual content of what the shortcut represents intents are far more flexible uh with regards to that than than user activities because your user activity is like it is go to place end intents like i said they have parameters and uh, because you can have shortcut types with varying number of parameters, uh, it can notice like, oh, you take tomato soup a lot. Um, but when you're at Apple Park, you take tomato soup and croutons. Um, so it can like assume things based on the number of parameters and present a more specific things in certain contexts and a more general one in other contexts. And of course, the algorithm always prioritizes higher precision shortcut types if there's a high enough correlation. So what makes good shortcuts to donate? Actions that are likely to be repeated. Consistent payloads across donations to maximize the effectiveness of prediction. You don't want to have like eight different functions around your application that donate shortcuts in very inconsistent ways. Like you might write one activity type one way in one place or uh, use different string formats in different parts of the app. Like this can completely screw up how Siri tries to predict your stuff. So try to have one centralized location which donates those um, those activities or those intents and try to keep your, uh, your payloads as consistent as possible. Avoid having timestamps in your donation payload uh, because, again, this is just like another thing that is unlikely to be relevant to the actual... Uh, predictability of things like if you keep going to check uh june 5th um appointments in your calendar once it's june 6th like you won't care about the june 5th uh, thing and maybe you should just be saying like show me today's calendar instead of show me a specific dates calendar donate once and only once per user action to maximize the accuracy so if i order soup through your app and you have like a four-step ordering process inside your app, don't donate the the intent for every single step of your thing. Only do it once it's confirmed that the action has happened and do it only once. Otherwise, you are just going to pollute with a bunch of donations and then Siri is unable to do the prediction as well. And if there is a small bounded set of values, use enums for parameters because apparently Siri prioritizes enums somehow. Privacy note to consider, delete shortcut donations for content that the user has deleted from within your app because it would be really creepy if you take a naughty picture with your phone and you go look at that naughty picture multiple, multiple times and then you delete it and then you go to your lock screen and it tells you, oh, do you want to look at the naughty picture? Uh, not good. Um, so 
delete shortcut donations for content the user has deleted from within your app after it's been deleted. There's also this weird-ass thing, which seems completely unrelated to Siri shortcuts, called media shortcuts. Uh, this is IN Play Media Intent. This is for media apps, uh, more specifically things with episodic content like television shows and podcasts. It launches your app in the background and starts playing content, and it does the smart thing of trying to correlate, uh, like, if you're using a speaker, are you more likely to be playing music? Versus if you're using headphones, are you more likely to be playing podcasts? And tries to do that smart stuff and tries to suggest content that it wouldn't be the most relevant to you uh, based on that intent. It also works on HomePod via AirPlay. And yeah, IN Upcoming Media is the class uh, specifically for the new content that you should be looking at. The play media intent basically is you can create a shortcut for, let's say, play this playlist or play the latest episode of this podcast or stuff like that. So now we get to the editorializing part of the thing where I say, uh, first of all, I need to straight up say, like, I am very happy that this functionality is in iOS 12. It's not because I'm going to be shitting on it that I necessarily think it's a bad functionality. I just think that it is not what Siri needed uh, this year. Oh, okay. That's a... I'll let you finish, but that's an interesting approach. I was I was surprised that you were going there. So the issue with Siri shortcuts is if you upgrade to iOS 12 and the user does absolutely nothing, Siri is not smarter in iOS 12. It is exactly the same Siri as before. All of these features require user interaction to actually make Siri the voice assistant better. So... The new intents that were added that are not the Siri kit domains, but like the intents like order soup and stuff like that. You can't say order tomato soup to Siri. You have to order tomato soup in the app. Then it gets presented as a shortcut in the Siri settings. Then you can set a custom phrase for that shortcut. And then you can use only that special phrase in Siri to do that thing. And only that thing. If you decide one day... I don't want tomato soup. I want mushroom soup. If your shortcut is order tomato soup, you can't say anything to Siri that will make her order tomato uh, mushroom soup. So in that way, it reminds me a lot of the early criticism of the Amazon Echo, where people were saying, this is too much like a command line. You have to say exactly a specific phrase to get everything to work. And fair enough, in the early days of the Amazon Echo, that was the case. They have come a very long way since then. And the approach that Siri took was... If you support integrating with Siri, we will automatically handle all of the conversational ways you address Siri in every language. So if you decide to support SiriKit, even if your app isn't in Japanese, you can call uh, someone via your VoIP app in Japanese because SiriKit provides the Japanese language templates that it recognizes to do that stuff. They have basically thrown that shit out the window with Siri shortcuts and said, it doesn't, it still doesn't matter if the actual app supports the language that you're targeting, but the user has to manually go set up the phrase that they want to say. It is entirely in the user's hands whether or not that works. So do you kind of see like why I think it's, it's giving a lot more credit to the Siri team that really they've just made a dumber Siri and people are happy that now they have a dumber Siri because they realized for like the past couple of years, actually our smart Siri that does things the quote correct way is just not useful. I understand your point, and to me, it felt more like an admission that Siri is not great. Like, I was super excited when they promoted it. I never realized, okay, so they're not adding more intent. They're just saying to devs, create more intent. 
and we'll figure it out to show it to your user when appropriate. And that's where I uh, I totally agree with you about the, like, it feels like I'm a Alexa 1.0, right? It's like, we don't know what we should do, or we agree that we just suck, so... What's really like, weird is, just... like, they're doing it in the opposite direction, right? So, Alexa, original Alexa, it was super reliable, but super dumb. And, like, that was basically, like, the main point you could say about it. It's like, people were saying, like, yes, it is a command line. You have to address it in a very specific way, but when you do it, it works, like, 95% of the time. It is super reliable. And what they've done is they've been cranking up the smart knob to now it's, like, basically surpassed Siri, except in less languages, more or less. And now they've gone the opposite direction for Siri, which is, like, here is this super smart, in theory, thing that can speak, like, basically every language that iOS supports, like the ones that people buy iOS devices in large numbers anyway. And now we're going to make it dumb because we've realized that our approach doesn't scale to the stuff that people actually want to do with voice assistants. However, people want to do those things with voice assistants without having to tell the voice assistant beforehand that they have to do this thing for this phrase. Like with Amazon Echo, when you bought it the first time, like, yes, it was a command line, but the command line phrases were all defined out of the box. Whereas now with iOS 12, you upgrade your phone. It's like, cool. First, I have to do everything I want to do in my apps first so that they show up in the list of shortcuts I can actually define. And then I have to go define all the the shortcuts for the things I want to do. And in the off chance that I want to do something that is not in my shortcuts, I guess I have to do it manually. And it it's just super weird and not very useful. I think the place where they salvage it is with custom shortcuts. So this is analogous to Alexa routines, which I have been playing with a lot in the past few days because Alexa has had this for quite a while. Um, basically, you can say, uh, well, for Alexa, it's either say this phrase or at this time trigger this series of events. And like I have mine to say, at 5.45 a.m., uh, set the volume to 1 because I don't want, if Alexa says anything, to say it super loud. Turn my uh, smart plug on. Like, I can give it a series of things. I can say, like, go play the, my favorite jazz station. Like, I can do all of these things. And it's similar to workflow. However, the thing where Siri shortcuts is far more powerful is Alexa is limited to what Alexa can do. And Siri shortcuts can do whatever any app on my phone can do, provided they use user activities or intents, which I expect a lot of apps will at least use the user activities. I'm not convinced people will pick up intents yet because, again, it's not useful enough. Yeah, I guess the one that will be picked up is the one that is already like the, I think the, I'm not sure if it's the right way to call it, but the native intents that Apple define like your car sharing. Siri kit domains, yeah. Uh, Serikit domains, yes, that's the way, that's the, what I was looking for. So those domains are the first level and then you can have your intents and then if you don't do any of those trees, you're just kind of screwed. So, uh, to me, like all of this seems interesting, kind of a way to salvage Siri. That's why I'm excited about it. Uh, the only worry I have is if it's additive to the current workflow app, totally good. If they're removing stuff out of the workflow app for the, the new Siri shortcut app and like I can't do stuff that I can't do right now, that will rub me the wrong way. I think most of that stuff from reports I have heard over the last two weeks 
is still in there. Like, I think basically everything is still there because Apple has sort of recognized that professional iPad users basically rely on workflow for everything and that removing parts of workflow would be very disruptive to their workflows. And I think, like, they're probably going to have to remove some stuff eventually. Like, how long are you going to support, like, all of those apps X callback URL things when probably they're going to start supporting series shortcuts and a lot of that stuff can go away. So I, I think like it's all going to be there for the first version, but gradually you're going to be seeing stuff get replaced with the new answers to that stuff because I don't think Apple wants to be in the business of maintaining a database of X callback URLs indefinitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and especially all the legal contract. Yeah, but it, it's like I, I can see a roadmap where next year they say, oh, yeah, by the way, now your shortcuts are addressable directly from Siri without needing to define a phrase for them, because the shortcut types basically look like the utterances that you can define in Alexa. The only thing is you can't actually call them by those names, which is mind boggling. And I think the only reason that you can't do it is because they're afraid of namespace pollution. They don't want one app to be order blank like Amazon, which can sell basically anything. And then a soup app comes along and they have order blank, except you can order only order soup. And then the system has to figure out, well, where do you want to order it? Can you order books out of soup chef? Like, I don't know. I'm not a genius. Uh, so there's a lot of issues like that that come up and like, I'm not gonna lie. Like the Alexa solution is deal with it. You have to name the app somewhere in the sentence you're saying. And I think like Apple wants to avoid that as much as possible. Like the Siri domain is like add, add a task to to Doist or add the task <laughs> to things, right? Yep. That's the way you do it because if not, and I I think you might be right. That's maybe what we'll see next year is right now you need to say like command line number one does one thing, right? Command line number two does another thing. And then next year, if the devs properly like populate all the metadata, they'll just say, oh, this is an order shit from physical store uh, intent. So you can say, I want to order shit from that store. Can you do that for me? And then Siri's like, sure, I can do that for you. And like, what's, what's even stranger, right, is that like you can define the custom intents, but the custom intents, you still have to choose a verb from a list, a dropdown that doesn't let you add new values. And this is like the part that really makes my mind explode is that, I don't actually understand what that value does. <laughs> like, you can create a shortcut with any arbitrary text in it, regardless of what verb you're selecting. So I don't understand, like, what does that verb selection actually do in practice? And the only thing I can think of is these are future intents that they're going to be adding into SiriKit, and they want it to be future-proof for that? Like, I, I, otherwise, I literally don't understand why that value is there. That that would make sense for that part, and also maybe it helps prediction. Like it will predict yeah, maybe. that if it's th this type of blah, blah blah. But that would make total sense that maybe next year we'll see some of those verbs becoming full on Siri domains, and they'll be like, "Oh, that makes sense." And then they might have more verbs that they'll just stay intense for now, and then in a couple of years. Like, I, I can see this becoming a cycle. Like, you start to be in an intent first, and then you grow up to be a domain later on. Sure. So that is more or less all I had for series shortcuts. Um, I, I think the features are good. They're going to be appreciated when they're there. I still think it's not what Siri needed. But whatever, maybe next year, fingers crossed. Um, 
in the meantime, I'm having a great time with my Echo, and I'm going to be having an even greater time with my Echo next week once I start moving into my new place. And um, I'm not looking back at using Siri anytime soon. Hmm. Then maybe if a couple of weeks after you moved in, we might have to, oh, we will need to follow, have a follow-up episode about smart speakers slash like smart AI. Well, don't a forget, assistant. I promised earlier in the year that there would be an episode, which is my Amazon Echo review, and we still haven't done it. It's coming That's someday. True. That's true. That's called a teaser. That's a teaser, my friend. Sure. So in the meantime... You can find us on the internet. <laughs> really? Um, I wasn't sure. I thought we need to mail a cassette and then you receive the podcast this way. Well, I will gladly accept your cassettes, except please wait for me to be moved before sending the cassettes. Otherwise, they <laughs> might be get lost in the post. Um, but I will gladly accept your cassettes with your comments about our show. However, if it's too much trouble to go find a tape deck to record onto your cassettes. Uh, you can find us on the internet. Uh, you can find the show notes for the show, the fabulous show notes at limitlesspossibility.net slash 92, or you can find all of our previous episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. Note that you cannot order tapes of our episodes, but maybe in the future. Oh my goodness. What have you done? <laughs> oh my goodness. You can find us on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L I M I P O underscore podcast. Be sure to go follow us to know when our fabulous summer break ends. Uh, you can also follow us individually on the interwebs. I am at Sakurina, that's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A, and you can find Nukadivi on Twitter at Lukonosh, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And if you want to see my Japan photos while I'm in Japan, go to micro.blog slash Sakurina. Okay. You can tease that next week too, but uh, okay, that's okay. I, I just want to get people ready for the trip because uh, I'm very excited. Yes, uh, I'll say I am excited too. Oh, maybe apartment picks too. Maybe that's the Ooh. thing you're going to be seeing over the next two weeks. Wow. And we'll see that in the next two weeks. Sure. See you in two weeks.